You're listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message at 11 a.m. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. To learn more, visit mtcarmeldemarest.com or facebook.com forward slash mtcarmeldemarest. Thanks for listening. Thank you very much. It's amazing how well they harmonize together. If you take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 15, Lord willing, we'll look at verses 21 through 32. If you'll give me just a second, I'll set up just a little thing I want to show you today. Mark chapter 15. Mark 15, verses 20, I'll just have a little part I want to read there, uh, to verses 32. If you don't have a copy of God's Word in front of you, uh, there are notes provided for you in your bulletin that you can read along uh, with us, and I want to encourage you to make sure we're preaching God's Word to you. And then if you're watching at home, uh, you can download the YouVersion Bible app, uh, that's Y-O-U version, go to the More tab, tap Events Five Mount Carmel Baptist Church, click on today's sermon title, and you'll have the notes, quotes, and references there as well. We're following King Jesus on his way to the cross and subsequently Resurrection Sunday. And as we walk through the book of Mark, uh, chapter verse, chapter verse, Uh, 15 verses 20 through 32, I've entitled part two of this King Jesus series simply Crossless, Crossless. On March 29th, 2018, the Franciscan University of Steubenville posted Facebook ads to promote their online master's programs. The next day, Facebook informed the school that they had rejected the ad for its offensive imagery. The offending image was the San Damiano cross, and that's pictured for you in your notes. You can also see it on the uh, Bible app. That's the offending image. The offending image was relatively nonviolent, almost exultant picture of Jesus on the cross, and it was often used by St. Francis of a sissy. After local press sources picked up the story, Facebook reversed course and followed and allowed the ad. But the university posted a surprising follow-up blog that agreed with faith, Facebook's original decision. And some of you were saying, why did they recapitulate to them? Listen to what the university posted. It says this, indeed, The crucifixion of Christ was the most sensational action in history. Man executed his God. It was shocking, yes. God deigned to take on flesh and was 
obedient into death, even the death of the cross. And it was certainly excessively violent. A man scourged to within an inch of his life, nailed naked to a cross and left to die. All the hate of all the sin in the world poured out its wrath upon its humanity. I think many times now that 2,000 years have passed and we have seen the triumph of the message of Jesus in the world, we've become desensitized to the offense, the shock, and the scandal to talk about God's cross. You understand that the equivalent today would be speaking of God's electric chair, of God's lethal injection. I mean, how many of you would like to adorn your church with an electric chair? Right? The cross has taken on religious significance. It has become beautiful to us. But back in Roman times, I was watching a documentary this week, Crassus, when he overthrew Spartacus' rebellion, he crucified 6,000 slaves on the way to Rome. This was to put down any insurrection, any sedition, any traitors. It was to show we are not afraid of you and to deter any other behavior. And yet here we have Jesus, the God-man, embracing this form of execution. It is offensive. It is the scandal of the cross. It is a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Greeks. And it's any wonder, I want you to think about this, it's any wonder that the early church could ever grow and survive in the Roman Empire when their message was Christ and him crucified. The king is a criminal. And yet Christianity triumphs. How is that possible? Jesus in this passage has already been stripped down and scourged. His skin has been ripped from his bone. Roman soldiers have robed him in a Roman cloak to mock the emperor's purple robe. They have crowned him with thorns and they beat him on the face with a fake scepter to mock him as their comic king. The course of the cross has just begun. This is just the beginning. We're going to see more of the torture today that Jesus endured to pay for our sins. And when I ask this simple question, why is it necessary that King Jesus endure the cross? Let's look at Matthew chapter 15. We're going to read verses 21 through 32. I'm going to read them all, and then I'd like to just simply walk through and comment on each verse in order, and then give you the big idea for today. This is Mark chapter 15, verse 20 through 20, 32, and the simple last part of verse 20 says, they led him out to crucify him. All right, so he, this is a, now the official entryway into the course of the crucifixion. Verse 21, it says, they forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. He was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. They, the Roman soldiers, brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Then they crucified him. 
and divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide what each would get. Now it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge written against him was, the king of the Jews. They crucified true criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, Ha! The one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself by coming down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priest with the scribes were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him taunted him. An amazing story. How, how does this message penetrate and conquer the Roman Empire and make it all the way here on the other side of the earth where we've cropped up <laughs> to believe in it and adore it. Let's just walk through this text real quick. It says this. It says, They forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. He was Simon. And just pause a minute. We've got to remember, we shared this a week or so ago, that I think the book of Mark is Simon Peter's memories that have been recorded by John Mark and then arranged and put down in this book. Many scholars think that the book of Mark is actually Simon Peter's account of Jesus' life, ministry, death, and resurrection. Now, if you're familiar with Simon Peter's story, you know, his name is originally Simon, and Jesus nicknamed him Petros, the rock. But he's known to people as Simon. And the part that's really interesting here is just a few chapters ago, chapters 14, 13, 14, Simon Peter denies Jesus as his Lord. He, don't want, he doesn't want any affiliation with him because now Jesus is caught up into the religious and political politics of the day. They've done, imprisoned him. They're trying him. And Simon Peter is doing his absolute best to distance his name from the name of Jesus. And yet here, it's almost like there may be this point of, Simon turning around and embracing Jesus as Savior and Lord and identifying him. And so Jesus is on his way to the cross. He can no longer, by virtue of the scourging and the beating and being spit upon, he cannot take any more punishment at this point. And his cross falls. He cannot carry it any longer. And the Romans, not in help to Jesus, but to hurry this process along. They didn't want Jesus to take all day. They pulled a random man who had just come from the northern part of Africa in for the festival, the Passover festival, and they told him, you pick up his cross and you take it. The Romans had every right to instruct them to do this. They were the oppressors. But I want you to think for just a minute how this would have read to the people. Mark is probably writing to Roman Christians who were very well of Simon Peter and him denying Jesus. They just heard that. Could you imagine that they first hear and that this Simon picked up the cross and maybe, just maybe, Peter's come around. And then what does Peter admit? This was Simon of Cyrene. It's not me. 
Simon Peter is still nowhere to be found. The reason I emphasize this to you is because many believe that Mark's showing this. Why talk about this? For two reasons. Number one, isn't it interesting that he says it's the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now think about this. Why would Mark ever tell a group of people the names of the kids of this guy? And most people believe that if you go and read Romans 16, 13, Mark calls out a guy named, or Paul calls out a guy named Rufus who is in the congregation of the Roman Christians. That more than likely when he talks about this, they had members of the Roman church that this letter was written to that they knew the people and they said, that's my daddy that carried his cross. Isn't that an amazing thing? But it shows something else too. Whether Simon of Cyrene was converted or not, it does show you the impact that the cross of Jesus had on the people of that day and the subsequent generations. That there were people, think about this, who saw Jesus' crucifixion and yet somehow come full circle to say, and he is the Messiah, the Son of God. What causes them, I want to put that to you, what causes his sons to believe this? Mm. And they had firsthand knowledge of it. The other part that Mark is emphasizing is that every disciple of Jesus, every follower, every person who claims repentance of sin and trust in Christ, they too are supposed to pick up their cross. And yet Simon Peter, the apostle, was nowhere to be found. It was some other Simon. And I want to submit this to you with gentleness and respect. But who is picking up your cross because you refuse to pick it up? God will carry out his work of redemption with or without you. You understand that? And we have the privilege to play a part in this story. And so Mark, as he said before, not metaphorically or figuratively, to identify with Jesus is a death sentence. We accept that. And many of us, we would claim, yes, I would die for our Lord, but we don't live or serve for him. So are you a Simon Peter or Simon of Cyrene? That's the choice that every disciple is presented with in this passage. Either to run from the cross of Christ. Everybody loves a Jesus that's crossless. But the minute the cross is involved, sacrifice, death, to all our hopes, wishes, dreams, and then physical death is talked about, Sometimes you just have to pull some random guy off the side of the road. <laughs> it's sad. That's how fickle human nature is. And thank God, thank God for the grace and love of Jesus that he went on up to Calvary regardless. Ain't that good? But we're still called to carry our cross. Look at the next verse. It says, they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha. This is another reason Mark... They think Mark is writing to Romans because he explains what Golgotha means. That's a Hebrew word for the place of the skull. This was a, a mounded hill just outside the city of Jerusalem. And either one of two things, either the hill looked like, the, like a skull from a distance or it was just considered a place of the dead, kind of like a skull and crossbones. Like don't, if you're up on this hill, it's your worst day ever. And another point, I just want to mention this because I've had people ask me. People talk about 
Is it Golgotha or Calvary? We talk about Calvary. Calvary is the Latin transliteration of the Latin term for skull. So that's all it is. It's Golgotha and Calvary mean the exact same thing. But we always, Christians, we worship, so to speak, the event of what happened on Golgotha and Calvary. And to be up on that hill was no good place to be. The next verse says, They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. It talks about in Proverbs 31 that a good woman will offer a drink of wine to those who are hurting or oppressed. Wine mixed with myrrh. Myrrh was simply a narcotic. It would numb the pain. And it's really interesting here that Jesus is essentially offered a drug to help him endure the cross, and he rejects it. Many commentators believe, and I agree with them, the reason that he rejects this myrrh is because he desires to be conscious, not because he enjoys the pain, but so that he can carry out redemption itself. That to take these drugs would to compromise his control. And he has more things to say, more things to do and act while he's on the cross. So he endures the pain to carry out redemption. The next verse, he goes on, it says, Then they crucified him. Isn't it interesting that Mark doesn't explain crucifixion? It was that well known. They understood what that That meant. They they took Jesus' arms out and with nails, a carpenter's tools. They nail his hands to that wooden beam and then nail his feet to the cross and then raise that cross up. This was a horrific death. And remember, he had already been beaten within an inch of his life. This is a signpost from the Romans to the rest of the world. Don't try us. Don't try us. So they crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide what each would get. He hung either completely naked or just barely covered up with some type of loincloth. And so this was a shameful death as well. The Jews did not celebrate nakedness. Any form of that. This is humiliation, what Jesus is enduring for you and for me. This also fulfills scripture from Psalm 22, that they would divide the lot, by lots the righteous sufferer's clothes. The next verse, it says, Now it was not in the morning when they crucified him. And just as a note, Jesus' crucifixion probably lasted somewhere between 9 in the morning to 3 o'clock in the afternoon. About six hours he hung on the cross before he died. And we'll talk about some of the amazing events that occurred in those six hours. But probably Jesus was tried at 6 o'clock in the morning, and by 9 o'clock he was posted up on the cross. And he wouldn't be taken down to sometime after 3 in the afternoon. And this is actually a a quick death, comparatively. You read other histories about the crucifixion, people could last on the cross for days. It was meant to be a long, drawn-out death. Then verse 28, it says, The inscription of the charge written against him was the king of the Jews. More than likely, Roman soldiers would somehow carry this citation before the crucified criminal on the way up to Calvary as a show to say, look what he did. He claimed to be the king of the Jews, and look what we're doing to him. You see how this works? 
And then when they finally arrived at Golgotha, at Calvary, they would take that citation and post it up, uh, either hang it around the victim's head or post it up on the top part of the cross so that everybody could see the charge that was against them. And the charge against Jesus, and it's interesting to see how the Jews interpret it. They understand that Jesus is claiming, notice what, just drop down real quick, verse 32. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down. They knew that Jesus was claiming to be the Son of God, the hero of Israel, that rightly should sit on the throne and govern his people. That was the charge. They knew Jesus had claimed that, and so they killed him because from a religious perspective, they thought it was blasphemy. He's claiming to be the Son of God, and he's not. And then from the political perspective, the Romans saw it as a threat to their jurisdiction. Nobody claims and pretends to be a king over people. Only the Romans are. And it's important that we see that, that, that this is the charge that's brought against Jesus. It is both blasphemous to the Jews and treason and insurrection. From the Romans, because that plays a part later. Verse 22, it says, They crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. This does a couple of things here in this text. If you remember just a couple of chapters earlier, uh, in the book of John, the uh, Pontius Pilate gives the crowds there at Passover the option of letting Barabbas go or keeping Barabbas. Remember this? You want Jesus or Barabbas? Now, most people think that Barabbas and even these criminals, it's technically robbers. Josephus, in his antiquities, he was a Jewish historian that wrote during that time, he called robbers also insurrectionists. They become synonymous, people who were trying to overthrow the government. And many people think that here's what was happening, is that there was a crucifixion plan that day, that Friday. And the idea was this, is they were going to crucify three insurrectionists. These two criminals, and guess who? Barabbas. Now can you imagine this for just a moment? You approach Golgotha and instead you see the two criminals that was responsible for inciting some type of insurrection. And their leader, who should be sitting in the middle, labeled the king of the Jews. This is the guy who's going to overthrow the government. There he is. And it should be Barabbas. And who's standing there in his place? Jesus. In Isaiah 53, verse 12, Isaiah prophesies that the suffering servant would be named among the criminals. And that's two ways of looking at it. Not only is the government saying he is a criminal... But even God is seeing him as a criminal. Do you understand that? According to the Old Testament in the book of Deuteronomy, any person who is hung on a tree, who's posted upside the city, is considered cursed by God. So the government is treating him as a criminal, and God is treating him as a criminal. Now notice the contempt. Verse 29, those who pass by, Remember, they're just going out into, uh, back and forth in Jerusalem from the Passover. This is like the Wild West, you know, like in, you've heard stories that they would hang people and all the, the whole town square would come up to watch it. It was a form of entertainment. So the crowds, they were coming out to see what was going on. And as they passed by, they shook their heads saying, ah, the one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. It took 46 or 47 some years for them to rebuild 
Solomon's temple. And Jesus had made statements like, oh, destroy it and I'll rebuild it in three days. And they just mocked him and scoffed. And so they're talking about his prowess. If he's the Messiah, he should be a superman. He should be able to do this. And look at him. He's there on the cross. There's no way he's God's Messiah. There is no way he is the Son of God. Look at the next one. Notice what he said. they say. Save yourself by coming down from the cross. Deliver yourself. Release yourself. If you're the Messiah, if you're the God-man, if you're the Superman, just do it. In the same way, the chief priests, now these are the religious leaders with the scribes, the lawyers, were mocking him among themselves, saying he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Did you just hear what they admitted? That they would never admit during his lifetime. Jesus clearly delivered and healed other people. It's a shocking confession. They admit it. Yeah, he, he cast demons out. You see how that works? He healed the blind. He raised the lame and the dead. He controlled the winds and the waves. He could do all this stuff to everything around him. He could control it. And yet what? He cannot even take himself on the cross. What an embarrassing admission on their behalf. They finally granted it to Jesus. He could do all of that. There's no point, though. He can't do this for himself. And so they say, let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. That is one of the biggest lies. They they just admitted they had seen him save others over and over again. And did they ever come to saving faith in Jesus? Absolutely not. And that goes to show you the depth of humanity's deceitfulness and sin. We will ask for a sign over and over again, and it will never be good enough. And so he says, even those who crucified him taunted him. Think about that. Even the criminals to his left and right, they're literally dying the same death that he is. They choose to mock him. They had no standing. Jesus is on that cross enduring this execution completely and totally alone. No one is standing in solidarity with him. Except for maybe a sympathetic mother. That's about it. So what? Because church, I'll tell you this. If that is what we know of Jesus, we have no business following him. We, why are we gathered today in Jesus' name to make much of Jesus for some, excuse me, but you'll catch this, a backwoods Jew from Galilee who claimed to be a king and rightfully the people around him thought he was crazy and crucified him. Fair. And yet we talk about all the time, Jesus changed my life. How is that possible? How is that possible? And I want you to write this down. And here's the part that's so mesmerizing. And this is what they could not see that day. And I hope to do my best to explain it to you. Is a crossless king cannot save you. Write it down. A crossless king cannot save you. Had Jesus come down from that cross, he could not have saved me and he could not have saved you. 
What? <laughs> had he skipped it? Had he done what they asked him to do and gave them this sign? You and I would not experience forgiveness of sin and for God's wrath to be turned away from us. What you need to understand is when Jesus died, that is the Son of God dying. And when the Son of God died, who was burying your sin, your sin died that day. And when your sin dies, God's wrath dies from being against you. Jesus knew what he was doing. Jesus knew he could not save himself and save us from God's wrath at the same time. He had to make a choice. Could Jesus save himself? Yes. Would Jesus save himself? Why he chose to stay on the cross, we'll never understand why. The only thing we can say is the love of God. That's all Paul says. He demonstrated his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's what no one else could see that day was the love of God being manifested on the top of Calvary. To descend from the cross was not a physical impossibility. It was a moral and spiritual impossibility for God's Messiah. If he did so, he would cease to be God's Christ. I love what one commentator said when they said, Save thyself and come down from the cross, not knowing that their only hope of escaping hell was for him to stay there. The Lord ignored them. Could you imagine? That's, when, that's why none of us are Jesus, because I'd have been like, You don't understand! <laughs> You still don't get it. It says, had he answered them, he may have chose the words of noble Nehemiah. Remember Nehemiah who went up and built the walls? When Sambalat and Geshem told Nehemiah to cease from his work and to come down and discuss things with us. They were trying to slow Nehemiah down from the work. What did Nehemiah said? He said, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and come down to you? Jesus was doing the same thing. I can't come down. I'm doing work. I'm making things right between you and God. It's me or you. (laughs) And he endured it. Come down from the cross is still being heard by people today. The world continues to clamor for a crossless Christ. Because when we say that Christ was crucified, we have to accept the inevitable that it was Christ dying for our sins. That's the only thing that makes sense of this story, right? If there's nothing in the heavenlies transpiring, this is just another Jew crucified by the Romans. Welcome to the thousands of people that happened. Why does this one guy stand out in particular? Because he's making the claim along with his disciples, I am saving you from God's wrath in it. And then why would we believe that? Well, you got to wait a couple weeks, you'll find out. Why would we believe it? Why would in 300 years, the same Roman Empire that called him the king of the Jews and executed him, make Christianity the official religion of the empire? It's odd. (laughs) So odd. I want you to think about this, though, on a personal level real quick. 
If you look on your, your notes, there's a picture of Jesus hanging between the two criminals. Dr. Barnhouse, he was a famous evangelist. Uh, he was a Presbyterian, had a, a, uh, a radio program and was well known uh, back in his day. And when so, it was a gentleman who had come across the Atlantic and when he had got close to the coast, he picked up on the radio Dr. Barnhouse's sermons. And so when he landed, he went to go see Dr. Barnhouse. And it was spiritual in nature. He was sincerely concerned about his own salvation, this gospel message that Barnhouse said. And so when Barnhouse met him, he was walking through the church and finally went to this prayer room where there was a chalkboard up. And Dr. Barnhouse wrote this. He, he just simply, and you can put this in your notes, he wrote, in under one cross, in over other, the other cross, but then said not. And here's what he was asking. He says, do, do you understand what I'm showing you here? And he goes, I think I do. He's talking about based off the sermon. He said, the two criminals had sin in them. Yes, that's exactly it. These are sinners through and through. And what are we saying about Jesus when we preach Jesus? Because you wouldn't have saw this. Here's what I want you to catch. If you were on the ground that day, right? There's no doctrine. There's no theology. There's nothing like that to explain what's going on. It's just, this is what you see. This is history. Nobody's doubting this. This happened. What Christians are saying, this is what Christians, this is the gospel message. It's super simple. That everybody except this guy in the center has sin. And this incurs God's wrath. You have sin, I have sin, and we deserve to spend eternity in hell because of it. And the gentleman understood that's what Dr. Barnhouse was at. And then he said, now I got one other thing. Okay? So he said, own, own, own. And what I mean by this, he said, he says those men were experiencing the consequences of their sin. Their sin rests on them. And he said, well, what about Jesus then? He said, well, here's what happened is that this guy is no longer having the consequences of sin. <laughs> it's not on him. It's been transferred to Jesus. And that simply, ladies and gentlemen, that's what we mean by the gospel. That's what we preach. That's the essence of it. And the difference is this. You can participate in this thief's experience, because we find out later he did do this, right? We see in the book of Luke that one thief here actually tells Jesus near the end of his suffering, before he breathes his last, hey, will you remember me when you come in your kingdom? That is a fascinating statement. He confesses Jesus is the king. And what kingdom is he bringing if he's about to die? Faith is just born into this man. He repents. He confesses. We've, we've done what we do. We, we've deserved the death we've experienced. And yet what? This man has not. We are literally, church, 2,000 years now. This is what we get back to. Every, I mean, everything comes back to this simple sketch. That's it. And what we're saying is at the end of history, when time is no more, you're going to have one of two options, and it's going to have everything to do with the man in the center. The king on the cross. You can be like one criminal, never confess your sins, never confess 
Jesus' saving work on the cross and sin remains in you and sin remains on you. You will experience the full weight of sin before God in judgment. Real clear. That's what the Bible teaches. Or the only way we can absolve ourselves is to confess sin. It's not even by living a better life. You're never going to get out of this. This is your estate. This is your condition. And God in his great grace has offered a path out. That's Jesus alone. And when we, from our own crosses, hey, it's just a matter of time before we all die and stand before God in judgment, we can, by faith and repentance, cry out to Jesus, confess we're sinners. I deserve everything that's coming to me. You don't. You don't. And believe in him, and here's what he does. This is the beauty of God. And the, the reason we believe this is because God raised Jesus from the dead was that God said, I'll take the precious blood of my son and it will cleanse you from all sin. I will not credit it to your account. In fact, God goes one step further, and this is what the book of Romans talks about. He justifies us, means he credits us with the righteousness of Jesus. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. It is absurd, <laughs> okay? It really is. You say, well, how is this possible? It's based on God's character, not ours. God is loving and gracious and merciful. And notice this, though. At the same time, he is a just God because sin still goes punished. That's why Paul talks about he is the just and the justifier of sinners, of the unjust. How can he do that? Because this was happening in history. Wow. Wow. In church... One of the reasons I believe this is the very truth of God, it's as Paul says, you can't make that up. It is foolishness to the world. How does Jesus overcome the world? By becoming sin and then absorbing all the wrath against it. What an amazing thought. Luther put it this way, he says, all the prophets saw this, that Christ was to become the greatest thief murderer, adulterer, robber, desecrator, blasphemer there had ever been anywhere in the world. In short, he has and bears all the sins of all men in his body, not in the sense that he committed them, but in the sense that he took those sins committed by us upon his own body in order to make satisfaction for them with his own blood. And Jesus' precious blood satisfies and turns away the wrath of God against you. I want to finish with just this little poem. Lewis Bailey's 17th century devotional handbook, Practice of Piety, is largely unknown today. Near the end, there is a dialogue between the soul, so picture your soul, and Christ in which Christ explains to the soul the meaning of the cross. Remember the meaning, because history says this, right? The scriptures, the gospel, right, is explaining the significance of the story. Mark just, just telling you the story. This is what we're here to preach and proclaim. And here's what Bailey says. This, the soul says this, Lord, why would you be taken? Why are you the mightiest? Have escaped thine enemies. Why, have you, why would you let them take you? Why would you not run from your enemies? And Christ says to your soul, he says, that your spiritual enemies 
should not take you and cast you into the prison of utter darkness. The soul says, well, Lord, why would you be bound? Christ says that I may loose the cords of your iniquities and sins. The soul asks, Lord, wherefore would you be lifted up upon the cross? And Christ says that I might lift you up to me in heaven. The soul, Lord, wherefore were thy hands and feet nailed to the cross? Why? Christ says, to enlarge thy hands to do the work of righteousness and to set your feet at liberty to walk in the ways of peace. The soul, Lord, why would you have your arms nailed abroad? I love this. Christ says, that I might embrace you more lovingly, my sweet soul. And the soul said, Lord, wherefore was thy side opened with a spear? And Christ said, that, I might have a w- that you might have a way to come nearer to my heart. We have a king who endured a cross for us, ladies and gentlemen. Why? Because of his great love for us. And we have no reason for that. And the only thing left for us to do is notice this. He says, so what part do I play in redemption story? You really have only three parts. You committed the sin. We, we, we have the sinner's part. And so what God has asked us to do in Jesus' name is to repent of sin. Acknowledge you have sin in you and it has separated you from God and you deserve for sin to remain on you and to die and go to hell. That's what you deserve. That's what I'm saying that I deserve. And yet because of God's love and mercy and grace, we accept Jesus alone as the payment for our sin and the forgiveness and eternal life and resurrection that we will experience in his name. I'm going to ask every head bowed and every eye closed. I'm going to give you an opportunity right now to do what that thief did on the cross. To confess your sin and to call out to Jesus for salvation. You say, how are we able to do that? I just read a story about him being crucified. This is the part of Easter. This whole story is completely insane if it were not for Easter where God raised him from the dead. The explanatory power of God raising from the dead makes the absolute best sense of how this man is worshipped as the God-man. And so Jesus is not dead. He is alive. More alive than you and I are. Immortal, incorruptible. And he is the Son of God. It means he has all of God's powers and attributes. He can hear our thoughts and whispers. Jesus is present with us now. He can hear you now. So what I'm asking in the stillness and silence of your heart, will you call out to him as a sinner and ask him for forgiveness? And he'll pardon you because he endured the cross for you. With every head bowed and every eye closed, will you just repeat this prayer after me? There's nothing special about the prayer, okay? It's the call out to Jesus. Jesus saves us. Just say, dear Jesus, I confess I am a sinner and deserve wrath. But you are innocent and perfect. I believe you love me. You came down for me. And you shed your blood and died on the cross for my sin. And I believe God raised you from the dead to prove it. Please forgive me. Come into my life and change me.
and grant me eternal life. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to tell you, if you prayed that prayer, if you called out to Jesus to be your Savior and God, he will be. And Jesus tells us in this word, God's word, the Bible, that the next step in our walk of following him, picking up our cross, is baptism. Baptism shows the church and the world that when you go under the water, you say you believe and identify with Jesus' death for your sins. And when you come up out of the water, you're saying and showing that you believe in Jesus' resurrection for your forgiveness and eternal life. And I've shared this with you before. If a Christian is capable, if you've called out to Jesus and you're physically able, there's no such thing as an unbaptized Christian. We pick up our cross, we follow him. And that's a part of it. And so I encourage you to identify with Christ in baptism. And you can do that one of three ways. Fill out that tear-off panel, check the baptism box, text BELIEVE to our text in church number, go to our website, fill out the baptism tab. I'd be delighted to talk to you about the next step of baptism that Jesus calls you to. The second thing that I want us to do in this time at the end, I want you to hear Thomas Akempis. He's very well known for his book, Imitation of Christ. And he talks about what it looks like to be a cross bearer. And you can begin to play. It says, may the thought of the hard smiting of your head help me to bear my own bodily pain of whatever kind it may be. May the fault of the scornful blindfolding of your eyes check the curiosity of mine. May the fault of the filthy spitting upon your beauteous countenance repress within me every fleshly lust. And may it teach me not to be dazzled by outward glitter, but to cultivate more earnestly than ever the inward graces of the soul. May the thought of the mocking which you had to bear make me shrink from all levity of behavior and from all foolish jesting. And may the fault of the utter setting at naught of your majesty quench in me all desire of being made much of and lead me rather to seek a mean and lowly state. Jesus set this example for us in bearing his cross that we should bear our cross as well. I know that will take supernatural effort, but God has not left us alone. He has given us a counselor and a comforter, the Holy Spirit, and just beg him to help you to bear this cross in a world that desperately needs to see real discipleship. Will you pray that prayer? Heavenly Father, Lord, we uh, stand in awe and amazement of your redemption plan. That we recognize this wasn't some plan B, dear God, but 
from the foundation of the world, uh, the Lamb of God was slain for our benefit. Um, it is a, an amazing story, dear God, only something that you could create in reconciling the world to yourself. Lord, we see today how the beauty or the horror of the cross becomes the beauty of the cross. That it is our one and only path to forgiveness and redemption. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here that's never repented of their sins and trusted Jesus as their Savior, that today would be the day. And then they would identify with him in baptism. And then, Lord, may we be mindful as we, we look up at the cross that we're called to bear our cross for your sake. Help us, Holy Spirit, to do that, that our discipleship may be evident to a lost and dying world. And Lord, use us to glorify you and to make much of your Son by the power of your Spirit as we leave this place. We pray this in Jesus' strong name and all God's people say, amen. I got just a couple of quick announcements before Brother Rick comes and leads us in one last worship song. Again, do not forget about our Easter drive through uh, story that's March the 27th. We're needing approximately 12 uh, men who will get on a one-hour rotation. It'll be, I guess, uh, three sets of four uh, that would, when I say act, you don't have any speaking lines, but to be a part of uh, the drama. Uh, if you can participate in that, please uh, contact Stephanie Heights, Kay Ward. If you don't have their information, just simply text SERVE uh, to our texting church number, and I'll make sure to give that to them. Um, please grab a, a bag of the eggs and go and fill them up with individually wrapped candy. We'll have a ton of people. I know there was like at least, when I checked the other day, 80 or 90 people that were interested in coming, and that's probably cars, not uh, individuals per se. So please, we need your help in, uh, in making that possible. Uh, don't forget about Sunday school next week, 10 o'clock. There is a space for everybody. Come and be a part. And then last but not least, don't forget about our women's Bible study this Tuesday, 10 o'clock in the fellowship hall. All right. Thank you so much for coming to worship with us. And uh, Brother Rick, will you come and lead us in one last song? Amen. So this week as we leave, let's don't be ashamed of the cross and let's tell the world that I'm a Christian. Let's stand together as we sing that. Thanks for listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. Please join us this Sunday at 11 a.m. To plan your visit, go to mtcarmeldemarest.com.